Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. If you are new with us, we're working through the Bible in our sermon series. Usually at Hope, we spend a season exploring one book at a time. We're doing something different. This time we are spending a season exploring the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover. And so let's turn this morning to Deuteronomy. We're calling this series, as you turn there, Table Read. A table read is when actors and actresses sit around a table and they read the script together. And they read the entire script from beginning to end. And instead of just focusing on their lines, they actually commit to reading the entire story that they are a part of. Which gives them two things. It gives them the big picture, of course, but it allows them to play their role well. I hope we actually believe that the Bible is best understood as the true story of the world. It's not a self-help book. The Bible is a rescue story. And this rescue story of the Bible elevates us and it lowers us at the same time. It lowers us because Jesus is the hero of the story. We are not. Amen. And yet it elevates us because if we read the scriptures faithfully, we start to understand that God has an immense role for us to play in this story. In order for us to play our parts well, I think we should get to know this big picture. In other words, we should have a table read with our Bibles. And that's what we're doing. We're having a table read with our Bibles. We're getting to know the script of which we are a part. Last week, we table read the book of Numbers. We're going through uh, Genesis on up. And so this morning, we are looking at Deuteronomy. Well, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. But it's also the fifth and final book of what is called the Pentateuch, or the Torah in Hebrew. Torah. Say that with me. Torah. Torah is the foundation of God's story. We will struggle to understand the Old Testament. We will struggle to understand the New. We will struggle even to understand Jesus and His work without these five foundational books. In the Torah, we have Genesis, how things started and how things went south. We have Exodus, how God rescued and created for himself a people. And then we have Leviticus, how God gave Israel forgiveness through the sacrificial system. And not just that, nearness and intimacy with them. And then we have Numbers, which was last week, if you were with us, how Israel failed time and time and time and time again. And yet God's faithfulness to his promises are remaining. And this morning, Deuteronomy. This book is basically, if you want to know, Moses' last words. Okay? That's what we're looking at. A collection of sermons that Moses preaches after 40 years of wilderness wilderness wandering and just before his own death. And in these sermons, he reminds Israel of who they are. He reminds Israel of who God is. And he reminds Israel of what it looks like to be a kingdom of priests, which is what God calls His people. But these words are not just for the wilderness generation and their children. 
All throughout scripture, you are going to see Deuteronomy referenced time and time again. In other words, all throughout scripture, they understand Moses to be preaching to them as well. And friends, Jesus himself draws on these servants quite often. And his earliest followers too. So I think it's a good idea that we also sit in here. Sound good? Well, let's pray before we do that. Lord, may the words of my mouth with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And that means that we sit here and you promise us to open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn new information, but that we would actually see Jesus in Deuteronomy and worship him and sing of him. And Lord, we pray that by the time this message is over, Jesus would be higher in our hearts. Jesus would be more beautiful in our estimation. That Jesus would be here by the Holy Spirit through your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, when I was a freshman in college, I reluctantly decided to do what is called Rush Week. Y'all know what that is? It's when you visit a fraternity or a sorority and they try to recruit you. Now, I said I was reluctant because on the one hand, I was reluctant because I was young in my Christian faith. I was just following Jesus really for the first time. And let's just say I didn't think that frat life would be super conducive to that faith journey. But on the other hand, I was curious enough to try out. I thought maybe there's just one house out there that would be a good fit for me. Well, none of the houses were a good fit. Surprise? No. There was one, though. There was one. It was newly reorganized after having recently been kicked off campus for atrocious things. And it promised to be different. It promised to be different from all the other houses. It promised to be different than what you think of when you think of frat life. And it pledged. And so I pledged. I pledged with some dorm buddies of mine. And I shortly after became a member of this house. And honestly, it was a great experience. I grew in my faith, actually, was involved with Crusade, well, crew now. I had opportunities to share my faith as well in this house. And our house had a good reputation on campus. And so I wore my letters with pride. But I know that this four-year positive experience of mine was also a unicorn experience. (laughs) Super unique. And just because my chapter had a good reputation for those four years does not erase the decades of atrocious behavior preceding it. And the real harm that they've done. Or the fact that there are hundreds of other chapters across the country with bad reputations too. And for this reason, I don't wear my letters. I don't have stickers or sweaters. Why? Bad actors have cast these letters in bad light. And that doesn't represent me. I don't want it to represent me. Who I am, what I want to be known for. They are a false representation. So I don't wear them. Well, there are days and nights where I wonder, just being honest, if this is how the Lord feels about his people. I know it's not how he feels about his people, but I wonder it. I wonder it. Because he has given the church the awesome task of reflecting who he is to the watching world. 
Genesis says, actually, we bear God's image. God designed us as periscopes. Remember what a periscope is? A periscope is a carefully designed mirror that reflects like what is above the waterline to what is below the waterline. And what is below the waterline to what is above the waterline. And we too, as God's people, are carefully designed mirrors designed by God to really bring God to the world. And to bring others to the real life of God. That's an awesome task. And that means that the reputation of God's people is, by God's design, the reputation of God. To those we are in relationship with. And that's by God's design, and it's an awesome thing. And that's why it's beyond tragic when God's people falsely represent who God is to the watching world. This may not surprise any of us, but the reputation of the church in America is not very good these days. Without a doubt, some of this is out of our control, just like Jesus promised would happen. But let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Most of our bad reputation is squarely on us. Barna did a poll three years ago which asked a wide range of people their perception of the church, of the Christians in their life. And this poll helps me see accurately how maybe non-Christians view me and view us. What I saw in this poll, and again, this was three years ago, was that it turns out 91 to 92 percent have either a very negative, a somewhat negative, or a neutral perception. That's not good. <laughs> I mean, neutral's not bad, but... See, whether we like it or not, the church has one job, to bless every onlooker by accurately representing the truth, beauty, and goodness of who God is. In fact, this is the main point, if you can believe it, of Torah. These five books that we've been working through, Genesis... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and today Deuteronomy. The real main meat of these books is indeed to bless others as we ourselves have been blessed. That's Genesis 12. That's the very first thing God says to Abram when he promises him what he's going to do through his family. He's going to say, I'm going to bless you abundantly. Why? So that you yourself will be a blessing to everyone you encounter. We see this repeated and, and expanded upon so that in Exodus 19, God calls his people a kingdom of priests. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. A kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests, again, they bring God to others and others to God. And it is the key, I think, to Deuteronomy as well. When I was in seminary, which is Hogwarts for pastors, if you didn't know what that is. (laughs) One of the most important things they taught me in my sermon class, homiletics is the fancy word for that, is what they call the 2 a.m. test. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that my sermons were about one thing. And I knew exactly what that one thing was. And that when I'm preaching, I say that one thing. And then I say it again. And then I say it again. And then I summarize it by saying it again. And so the 2 a.m. test is, hey, imagine one of your congregants calls you at 2 a.m. while you're fast asleep. And they say, pastor, pastor, I can't make it to church tomorrow. I can't make it because of a family emergency. Please tell me, what are you preaching on tomorrow? So I know. 
And if you can't answer that question at 2 a.m. without pausing, then you haven't figured it out yet for yourself. Your sermon's half-baked. And a lot of you call me and do that, so it's okay. No, it's not true. It's not true at all. Well, I believe that if we gave Moses the 2 a.m. test, these are his sermons, he would roll over in bed, he'd pick up his cell, and he would say, reflect the true God to the watching world. That's the big idea of Deuteronomy. And it's important to keep this in mind when you read this sprawling book. It's a sprawling thing. Because on the one hand, Deuteronomy is hard to categorize. And so there are two main approaches. A lot of folks, they see in it, as I've been saying, three sermons. I'll put them up here. I know we're having trouble with this too. So if this starts getting really distracting, we'll just turn it off. Oh, not that. So we have a first sermon. That's chapter 1 through 4, verse 43. And you can see this if your Bible's open. You can see these are the words of Moses. A lot of these things begin. And then there's this message. It's pretty cohesive. Then we have a second sermon, which begins in verse 44 of chapter 4. It goes all the way to chapter 28. So that's like a long sermon. You know how sometimes I preach long? And then there's a third sermon, and it goes from chapters 29 to 30, verse 20. So in that first sermon, we see Moses rehearsing where God's people have been so far. And in the second sermon, we see Moses unpack what it tangibly looks like to live in covenant relationship with God. What, what does it look like tangibly, day in and day out? And what sets us apart from the other nations that are watching? And that's where we see a lot of the Deuteronomy, the law in Deuteronomy. And then this third sermon is where Moses pleads with Israel to choose life with God. Remember, Jesus always says, I bring life and life to the abundant. Again, Jesus is saturated in Deuteronomy. And there's echoes of Moses saying, choose life with God. And after this sermon, we see Joshua take his place. We see Moses sing a song and give a blessing. And then he dies. End of Torah. And that's how a lot of folks kind of parse out and bring together a lot of the sprawling elements of this book. There's another approach to them. Other scholars have noticed that Deuteronomy is shaped like an ancient contract or a covenant between a king and his subjects. And these contracts all have a similar pattern, these five or six elements. And it's pretty fascinating because the book of Deuteronomy sort of follows this ancient covenant uh, pattern very well. Where the relationship of the, of the contract is spelled out at the beginning. And then a history of the relationship is spelled out. And then you have general obligations, just a high level thing. We see the Ten Commandments sort of repeated actually by Moses in the general obligations. And then we have detailed obligations sort of fleshing out in case law what was generally described in that third section. And then we have blessings and curses when you obey this and when you disobey this. Life goes well with you. Life does not go well with you, etc., etc. in that fifth section. And then we have witnesses. Every covenant has a witness And that's what we see towards the end of this ancient book. So how do you parse this out? How do you make sense? I think they're both very valid and both very good. But that makes the point. We need to keep the 2 a.m. test in front of our minds so we don't get lost in the details. Once again, what is it? Reflect God, the true God, to the watching world. That's the big idea. And there's really no better place to see this than chapter 4, verse 6. I'll put it up on the screen and I'll read it with you. 
Keep them and do them. This is God's ways. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us. Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've set before you today. Do you see it? The Old Testament scholar, my favorite, Christopher Wright, he calls this Israel's open book mission. They are to live as an open book before the watching world. He writes, either way, faithful or unfaithful, the people of God are an open book to the world, and the world asks questions and draws conclusions. And that is by God's design. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that daunting? Isn't that awesome? Friends, our fundamental mission today has not changed at all. Much has changed because Jesus is with us, but our job is the same, to reflect the true God to the world. If we are to listen well to Moses this morning, we would learn how to do this well. And I want to explore this in two dynamics, two ways, that we reflect with contact and we reflect with contrast to the world. And I want to look at both, starting with contact. We reflect God accurately to the world by living in contact with the world. So notice how Moses tells Israel to keep and to do God's ways where? You see it? Keep and do God's ways in the sight of the peoples, it says. In the sight of the peoples. Moses doesn't say, go and build a bunker and hide out. No. We live with God in the sight of other people. Did you hear that? We live with God in the sight of other people. We have contact. We're not reflecting God to the world if we're not in contact with the world. I know that sounds like I'm insulting your all's intelligence, but it's helpful to me to just remind myself of that basic fact. We will not reflect God to the world. We will fail in our mission, actually, if we are not actually in contact with the world in significant ways. So as I said before, Exodus 19.4, God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Priests, as I said, stood between God and other people. They were like a hinge. They helped people see and encounter God, and God used them to meet other people where they are at. And Moses says that this is all of Israel, not just the Levites that were sort of appointed the task of taking care of the tabernacle and all that, not just those high priests, etc. They actually were symbolic of what every single member of God's people were to be to the watching world. Priests. They were to hinge God to others, others to God. They were a living hinge. And guess what? Moses says this to Israel. Peter says this to the church of Jesus. There's a fundamental continuity between this and today with Jesus. This summer, Josie, my wife and I visited the campus of UVA. 
I'm expecting some hollers right now, unless you're not here. And as we walked across this historic campus, we saw numerous campus tours. High schoolers with their parents were all standing on the lawn, this this sort of famous historic lawn. I don't think it's called lawn, though, is it? Apologies, like big apologies. Oh, it's a lawn? Good, thank you. Don't want to go, don't want to mess that up. And they're standing there, and this UVA student, a current student, is giving a tour. And I know I've made this point before with you guys, but when I think of being a kingdom of priests, I think of campus tour guides. These men and women are hired, why? Because they accurately reflect and even champion the campus they represent. To others, to not yet students. They not only champion the campus, they sort of are hired because they embody the character and the ideals of the campus, of the institution. And the same is true of you. And the same is true of me. We are called to represent God to the world as priests. That's who we are. And the only way we can do this, again, is if we have contact. If we're actually living our life with God in the presence of others. And so let me just ask you a very simple question, but it is pregnant with all kinds of reflection. Is your life with God in the sight of others? To quote Moses. Let me ask that again. Is your life with God in the sight of others? Others who do not yet know God. Contact. But that's not all. Deuteronomy also tells us to reflect God to the world by our contrast. Contact without contrast is assimilation. Blending in. Contrast without contact is monasticism, hiding out. We are called to be in contact and in contrast. Most of Deuteronomy actually is about this. In our passage, Moses says, keep and do the ways of God, which includes the first commandment to have no other gods. So that in verse 25 of our passage, Moses gives a huge warning not to take on the ways of Canaan by worshiping their idols and by taking on their ways. They are to remain different in the land. They are to remain a contrast in the land. And this explains all of the law that Deuteronomy contains. God's law is in stark contrast to the ancient Near East. Scholars actually who are way smarter than me, who are experts in the ancient Near East, They make note to how Old Testament law is starkly different than the rest of ancient law in that place and in that time. It's starkly different. Why? Because it reflects God to the fallen world and his character, his mercy, and his justice, his kindness, and his truth. Notice that the questions in verses 7 through 8 
are comparison questions. They're comparison questions. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great to have such righteous decrees or just decrees and laws as the body of laws I'm setting before you today? You can't compare God's ways with other ways unless you are living in a life that is different. And also notice that Moses expects their relationship with God and their ethics, their way of life, to raise questions. Isn't that astonishing? Moses expects that Israel would live a life that is, to quote Michael Frost, questionable. I love this observation from Chris Wright, who says, Israel would have intimacy with God and a quality of social justice that no other nation could match. We just read Leviticus where we saw the intimacy of God on display. I want you to listen to just an example of Israel's social justice Starting verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The mighty and awesome God. Who is not partial. And takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless. And the widow. He loves the sojourner. Giving him food and clothing. Therefore. Love the sojourner. Therefore. Love the sojourner. Why? Because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so Moses rehearses, these are the lives of the most vulnerable people in our midst. And we are to reflect the character of God to them. And the way that we treat them. Why? Because we want to accurately reflect who God is and how God treated us. And so again, Israel would have an intimacy with God and a quality of social justice that, is, that no other nation can match. Their care for the least of these, the vulnerable, reflects the very heart of God. And so we see in this that how both their experience of God and also their ethical life was to raise questions with those who were seeing it. And bring blessing to the nations, both. Often I think as a church we satisfy ourselves with our experience with God. Our experience of God will bless the nations. I feel so free with the Lord. That's important. I feel so alive because he saved me. That's important. But do you notice that the church is also called, God's people are also called to point to the Lord through their ethics and through their actions and through their practical day in and day out acts of love. The way we live our life reflects God to the world. And so, as I mentioned, Michael Frost wrote a book called Surprise the World. And I like this book. He says the task of every single believer is to live questionable lives in the sight of others. A questionable life means you're living in such a way that raises questions. An unquestionable life means that you are like no one's asking questions. You're just right along with the flow. No one raises questions when you're living like everyone else. He writes... If all believers are leading the kind of lives that evoke questions from their friends, then opportunities for sharing faith abound. 
In brief, our task is to surprise the world. And he writes about the early church. Quote, hundreds of thousands of ordinary believers were infiltrating every part of society and living the kind of questionable lives that evoked curiosity about the Christian message. They surprised the empire with their unlikely lifestyle. Their unlikely lifestyle was a surprise. And Frost references the 4th century emperor Julian, who was sort of enraged at this young group of Christians who were stealing devotion away from him. Why? Well, Julian writes because of their, quote, hospitality, their, quote, benevolence to strangers, their, quote, care for the graves of the dead. There were burial societies in those days. They were Christians. Why? Imago Dei. Imago Dei, image of God. People carry the image of God. They deserve a respectful burial. No one wanted to touch them. Christians wanted to touch them. Their, quote, holiness of their lives. So Julian writes, this is a quote, it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans, that's Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us, says Emperor Julian. What's happening? Well, Frost points out what's happening is they're living questionable lives. They're raising questions in the sight of others. Their life provoked questions about the hope that was within them. They're asking, who, like, from whom are they taking orders? It ain't me, Julian says. Like, what is, what is fueling these people? How can they do this? It doesn't make sense. What is going on? And therefore, there might be a question asked, what is going on? Who are you? That's a questionable life. Do you see it? That's a kingdom of priests. Do you see it? And so let me borrow this question from Frost. Is your life questionable? In a good way. Is your life any different from your neighbor's? Does your alignment with King Jesus give you any difference with your roommates or your classmates? Where is the contrast? Ask yourself that. I want to suggest as a way of closing two areas of contrast. The first is what I would describe as your wisdom. Your wisdom. We can surprise the world with wisdom. Hope values uh, what we call holistic Christian maturity. Aaron Badenhop, one of our leaders, helped me see that the Bible actually has a word for holistic Christian maturity. Wisdom. Hokema in Hebrew. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. To quote my Old Testament professor. I love that. Skill in the art of godly living. Notice it's not recitation of truth. That's important. Having perfect theology. No, no. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. It's maturity. Holistic maturity. Not just in facts, but in our love. Of God and love of others. Notice what attracts the nations to God, according to Moses. Our wisdom. 
or chokmah or wisdom. But Christians behave like jerks. Or when they damage other people, most of the time unknowingly. They are unwise. And sadly, this lack of maturity reflects on God. So that those in their life who are being harmed are profoundly impacted in their perception of the true God. And maybe that's you this morning. But it's a miracle you're sitting here. We can, as a church, friends, reflect God to the world with our maturity. That's why it's a value at our church. It's why we want to pursue that. If you stick with us, you'll see, I mean, in our home groups right now, we're exploring this very thing. I encourage you to check that out. But secondly, we could surprise the world with our worship. With our worship. So much of Deuteronomy is about true worship. Worship the true God and not false gods. So much about that is what Moses is after here. And so friends, surprise the world with your freedom that worshiping God brings. So our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues should see the freedom of true worship. Now I was just talking about singing songs on Sunday. As important as that is, as formative as that is. I'm talking about a whole life of worship. When we orient our lives around one center of gravity, God... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that brings a freedom to us. Why? Because we were created, we were actually designed to have the Lord in the center of our life. And when we put any created thing into that center of gravity, as good as it may be, a job, a family, a relationship, doing good works, a good reputation, really good gifts make very bad gods, as it's been said. Because they're not meant to be in the center of gravity. They were never designed that way. Only the true Lord is made to be in the center. And so when we worship the Lord as we were designed, there ought to be a freedom. There ought to be like a holistic freedom. Because we become more truly human. As we connect to our maker. To our Lord. But we can also surprise the world with our hope. Not just our freedom. Our friends should ask questions about the hope that is within us. The New Testament actually expects that the church would generate these kinds of questions. People lived questionable lives and people would say, what is the hope within you? I don't think my neighbor is going to actually come up to me and say, what is the hope within you? But they do ask, hey, I've noticed this. Like, what's going on? You seem to have a peace in that moment. What, what's that about? Hey, I noticed you didn't join in the gossip. What's that about? Are you too good for me? <laughs> no. It gets messy. But the point is, we live a questionable life. People ask about our hope, and this is an opportunity for us to point, friends, to our worship of Jesus. Deuteronomy 27, 26, Moses says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. And then in the very next verse, verse 
1 of chapter 28, Moses says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. The stakes were high. And if you read Deuteronomy, you get a feeling of the high stakes. Now, I want to just say this real quick. If you think about it, this makes sense. Because if Israel's role was to accurately reflect God to the nations, then disobedience casts God in a very wrong light. The stakes are high. And the sad truth is, as we will see in the weeks to come, Israel fails in this mission. Time and 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 time again. And so do we. And so do we. The Apostle Paul, who missed Jesus for most of his life, Jesus knocked him off the source, opened his eyes. Paul loved to point out that in the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus took on the curses of the covenant on our behalf. Jesus took on the curses of the covenant on our behalf. But too many times we stop there, as glorious as that is. Did you know that Jesus didn't just die for you? But he also lived for you? Jesus perfectly reflects God to the sight of all, doesn't he? God in the flesh. Jesus is the true and the perfect Israel before the sight of the nations. Jesus is the true and perfect light in the darkness. Jesus is the true and perfect wisdom, Hokemah, to the watching world. Jesus is the perfect integration of truth and love, isn't he? He is the most surprising person to ever live this world. He is the most question-raising person to ever live this world. The most questionable person ever. Who, unlike Moses, actually led his people into rest. Who, unlike Israel, holds fast to God's word and to his promises in the wilderness. After he, yes, crosses the Jordan in his baptism. Is faced with temptation in the wilderness. And what scripture does he lean on in that wilderness testing? Do you know? Deuteronomy. Why? Jesus is living this script for us. Where we failed. To show God to the watching world. Jesus comes. God in the flesh comes and says, I will do it for you. I will die for you. I will pay the covenant curses for you. But I will also bring the covenant blessings for you. Because my life is perfect love. And it's for you. God comes to us as the perfect Israel. So that we can rest in him. And point to him in our weakness. Who, unlike Israel, obeys every single jot and tittle of God's law. And if our trust is in Jesus, all of it is for you. We are a light to the nations. Because he is the light to the nations. This weekend I was camping 
And when it got dark, we lit a lantern inside of our tent. We have one of those really cool black diamond lanterns that hang from that little loop under your tent. And that meant that we could see where we were and what we were doing when it got dark. But it occurred to me it also meant that others could see our tent from very far away. We were like a glowing orange globe. And that's the image I want to leave with you this morning. Because it gets after so much of Deuteronomy. We are to be a light to the nations, amen? But friends, we are not the source of light. Jesus is. And we might have broken tents, and we do. But we are impossible to ignore. We are questionable. We are surprising. Because of the light that is within us. In fact, knowing that Jesus lived for us and died for us, it actually frees us up to live even more radically before others. Because we don't need anything, as it's been said by others. Our cup is filled. I love this mission statement, and this is how we'll close, of a church in Nashville called Emmanuel. Their mission is making Jesus non-ignorable in Nashville. Isn't that good? Our mission is similar. We want folks to be surprised by the welcome of Jesus. Surprised. We want our church to embody something, to be lit up by something that is so non-ignorable that it raises questions. Who are they worshiping? I want that. Friends, it's Jesus. Lord, we come now to you in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that you would give us lives of contact and contrast because Jesus is in us and among us by the Holy Spirit. And in our weakness, especially, we get to point to him and others would see the light. They would see the hope. And they would experience freedom in Jesus. What an awesome task you've given us, Lord, to be a mirror, to be a periscope. What an awesome task we fail. But we are dressed in the clothing of another high priest. Jesus. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.